Hey guys, Jack here. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have an amazing guest today. John the Lawyer is back on the podcast talking about awesome 510 action from Twin Rivers, I believe. I'm excited to announce the relaunch of the Software Y TV, uh, the Software Y subscription site. That's going to be back online August 13th. Uh, we're revamping it after the beta testing period. There's going to be some really exciting content on there. Uh, I'm excited to announce some of the stuff that I'm doing. I'll be co-hosting a podcast with Matt Hunt called Punted Off, where we try and determine whether interesting lines taken by professionals in televised poker settings uh, were printing or perhaps punting. I'm also doing a series called Constructing Sound Strategies, where I talk about how I go about strategy construction from the ground up, and I'll be focusing on how to build a bomb pot strategy in that series. And going through that process will show how I go about building a strategy, how I go about studying. Lots of interesting stuff. I'm really excited to keep that going. We've got a few videos already up, waiting to be released on August 13th. So I hope we will see you guys there. I'll post a link to that next week uh, when you can sign up. All right, guys. Thanks again for tuning in and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, Jackson. Hello, John. Ah, it's good to hear someone say hello, Jackson. I just recorded uh, one of the first episodes with a guest who's not Zach, and I really had no idea how to start. So I appreciate you taking the lead. And yes, we have John, the lawyer, as some people know him, back on the podcast. I don't know if this is your, I think this is your second time on, although we've been in touch since first having you. Um, Welcome back, and thank you for joining me. It's good to be back. Always enjoy the Just Hands Poker podcast. I'm glad I'm honored that you think I could contribute in some way. I think you can do more than just contribute. No, we've been. I've been looking for a chance to get you back on, and you were kind enough to alert me to your availability, and I'm very, very appreciative of that. And you mentioned that you were back at back on the grind this weekend. Sorry to any of the listeners who might be experiencing the faint sounds of a jackhammer outside of my window. Not much I'm going to be able to do about that through the process of recording, but I promise we will make it worth your time. Anyway, so yes, you just returned from Twin Rivers. Is that where you're still playing? I play at Twin River and at Foxwoods, and this day where I recorded this hand was the only day I was playing No Limit. I play a lot of Seven Card Stud, Pot Limit Omaha, Mixed Games, and this was a Friday where it was 100% No Limit. Twin River doesn't really spread anything else. Right. Are you still doing your schedule where you're going to play a few days a week and then you're at home solid the rest of the week? It is. I go down to Foxwoods on a lot of Wednesdays and Thursdays, and I play at Twin River most of the other days when I'm not doing other things home with my family. But Foxwoods has the benefit of playing all different games. For instance, in one day, I might start at Seven Card Stud. I might move over to, we played a good 5, 10, 20 PLO game last week. And then the next day, I played some 75, 150 mixed games with Pot Limit Omaha, Deuce to Seven Triple Draw, Badoogie, Stud 8 or Better, Omaha 8 or Better. And I love the variety. Unfortunately, it has made me probably worse at no limit, but only by a little bit. 
So I hope only by a little bit, but I'm sure after this show, you might think differently. <laughs> well, I, I think people who play mixed games are awesome. I've been getting more into it myself just from like a home game perspective. But I, one, I don't really have access to games that are good enough and small enough for me to you know, venture into those waters in the casino at this point. I feel like stud has passed me by, and that's fine. I'm curious, though. So you're, you're at Foxwoods on Wednesday and Thursday, and then at Twin River on maybe Friday and Saturday. Is that because the games are just better on the weekend, and so you're unwilling to play Hold'em unless the games are on sort of weekend level? I enjoy playing other games better, and I'm surprised I'm saying that. If, if you ask me 10 years ago... I would say, I will never say that. That's my opinion 10 years ago. But now, between playing 10-handed, 5-10, no-limit Hold'em, or 9-handed, 5-10-20, Pot Limit Omaha, the Pot Limit Omaha game might be twice as fun. And a mixed game where we're playing four or five different games, and we change every eight hands... That might be three times as fun as playing 10-handed No Limit Hold'em. So part of it is the fun factor. Uh, part of it is the variety factor. I like, at least I know at Foxwoods on Wednesdays and Thursdays, I'll have many different options. And surprisingly, Foxwoods almost completely shuts down for those games on Friday and Saturday. On Friday and Saturday, we might go from on Thursday having two or three stud games and a mixed game and maybe a bigger PLO game to no stud, no mixed and one two five PLO game. I don't know how it happens to come about, but on Fridays and Saturdays, it seems like Foxwoods is much slower. Whereas on Fridays and Saturdays, twin river seems to be much busier. Hmm. That's interesting. I still have never been to Foxwoods, which is I'm a little embarrassed about. And I also am concerned that I might not have forever to make it down there. I don't know if you are concerned about its viability once things like the Boston Wind have been opened. Somewhat, but I feel like the seven-card stud players come from the South. What I mean by that is they're coming from New York even New Jersey, Connecticut. Some are coming from New Hampshire and the Boston area, but I feel like the stud game will not completely die just because it's so much easier to get to Foxwoods because there are free nights available for people who are regulars on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And while I am looking forward to the win opening, and I think it will be good, I also feel like it will be very tough to get to because of the traffic. And I feel like after the first couple of months, people who live within, say, 45 minutes to an hour from Foxwoods will choose it for a stud versus traveling an hour and a half or more through traffic to go to the wind, where they probably will not get a free room to stay overnight. Yeah, those are good points. All right, well, that makes me feel better about procrastinating on my virgin trip to foxwoods although i'm sure it'll happen sooner than later maybe for a tournament you could come down experience that's probably a good idea 
And I, by the way, I agree with you about a, I think a rotation is very fun. Some of my favorite games that I've played in, and I don't get the opportunity to do it that often, but my favorite format of poker, and I always say this, is round by round, uh, Hold'em PLO. I think there's something refreshing about a round of Hold'em after a round of PLO, since PLO tends to go by a lot slower. And so really you're playing like two-thirds PLO in terms of time, and then you have this brief window of Hold'em for everyone to catch their breath. And I find it, those are the PLO games where I feel like I have the biggest edge, <laughs> where you have mostly Hold'em players, essentially. And they run a great game in Florida, and that's the majority of where I put in volume in that format. I also enjoy a half-and-half half game more than either of either of the games 100%. And I do think a good mix is No Limit and PLO. And I enjoy the variety, but I also think each of the games makes the other play better. Yeah, I agree. They're complementary. The The action of PLO helps Hold'em, and the speed of Hold'em keeps things a little bit lighter for me. Because I, I play way more hands in Hold'em than I do in PLO, which is <laughs> counter to the field. But that's just my strategy. I can't argue with that strategy. All right, well... The hand you brought today is Hold'em, which is good because I think I can add a lot more value in that realm. Uh, and it's from Twin River this past weekend, I assume at the 510 level, or potentially maybe. Do they ever get 10 to quarter? They never do. I don't believe they can spread anything higher than 510. <sighs> laws. Yes. Gotta love laws. <laughs> but at least this was a little different in that this was a tougher must move game that was shorthanded and i know many people would rather stay in a better two five full ring game but i feel like iron sharpens iron and as long as i wouldn't be in a tough game for let's say eight hours and it was going to be limited to a must move game then i think it's better i think one i think we should all look for opportunities to play in these tougher, short-handed games. You can always buy in shorter, but I think this is how we improve, playing more hands, getting in tougher spots, playing tougher opponents. And uh, that's what I did. This was a five-handed, 5-10, must-move with Dan Podheiser. I hope I don't butcher your name, Dan, but he... Just won the $1,100 win daily tournament on July 15th for $60,000 out in Las Vegas. He is a tough player who's a regular at the Twin River Games. And the other opponents in this one, there's another tough winner who's immediately on my left. And there was a passive player and a very passive player also playing. Neither of the passive players are what some people would classify as fish, but they're not going to be putting you to the test too often. Are they passive and also tight preflop? Are they playing a lot of hands and just playing them passively? No, both of them are fairly tight. I'm not saying that when losing they can't get out of line, but both are fairly tight, not too splashy, looking to do well, trying hard to win, not 
gambling too much, but also not three betting nearly enough. And that comes from probably someone who himself is not three betting enough and not really putting you to the test too often. But it also makes it a little bit tough because I feel like maybe they induce you to overplay hands by being passive. Yeah, passive. I mean, I think definitely the most profitable portions of their passive game tree are going to be when they are underplaying value and we, you know, value on ourselves at a higher frequency than we would against someone who was polarizing themselves through aggressive actions more frequently. That being said, they may be under realizing their value against hands of ours that opt to pot control at some point, uh, particularly on the river against a more passive opponent. So it's a trade-off that I don't think is worth making for them. The other interesting thing about this dynamic is when you have two players fitting this description at a nine-handed table, it doesn't change the dynamic that much. Uh, Typically, a nine-handed table is going to have a few people who are on the tighter side, on the more passive side. When you're playing five-handed and two of the players fit this dynamic, it's going to play a little bit more like a three-handed game with occasional guests. And this this can get more extreme. It's more extreme when there are three players like this in the five-handed environment, and it's almost like a heads-up match. Or it becomes like a heads-up match because you're afforded the opportunity to take so many spots because you face so little resistance from three-fifths of the table. With two players, it'll be a little bit different, and your pre-flop strategy won't be altered quite as much. It's still an interesting situation to find yourself in. I agree with your assessment, and in fact, it's part of the strategy that led me to open the 3-4 of clubs from the cutoff, because both of the passive players were in the blinds, and Dan had folded under the gun, and in my opinion... I'm going to make the most amount of money by playing with position with any hand with some equity versus two passive players. And I want to take the opportunity to raise whenever I have a reasonable hand, I would say three, four suited is on the almost lowest possible reasonable hand with which to raise. You could argue that queen deuce queen five suited hands like that are possibly also worth opening in that spot. And maybe three, four suited has a little bit more playability, but I'm not really sure. I think it depends a lot on how deep you are here. Everyone was 100 big blinds. Well, let me make this argument about the cutoff. I think in depending on your button, sometimes I think the cutoff can be the most profitable seat at the table. There's something about opening from the button that even a more passive player understands to a certain degree that you can be out of line here. There, there's something about that dynamic that loosens ranges preflop and gives you less credit postflop. When you open from the cutoff, those alarm bells just don't go off in the same way. And so if you have a button that's going to permit you to open a very wide range of hands, I think you're highly incentivized to do so. Now, if you have a button that's going to be very sticky and three bet a lot, then this is less true. But in a hundred big blind game, especially if you have a button who's not going to contest a lot through flats, 
then I think you're definitely afforded the opportunity to open both hands, like three, four suited and queen two suited. So I like, I like the open. How big do you make it in these games? A hundred big, hundred big pound game. I vary my raises from day to day, depending on who is in the lineup. There are days where I just open to 50 in a full 10 handed game, depending on who's in the lineup, but with a five handed game and earlier there was a very aggressive player who is a professional player and he was to my left and so because of that dynamic i was opening to 25 dollars i would personally i'm not a fan of opening to 25 dollars in a 10-handed game but in a five-handed game i think anywhere between 25 and 35 would be reasonable and i was choosing 25 for the first hour and then when the tough professional who three bets more than i would say any other player i face in no limit he's very tight but when he enters in position i would say he's three betting 80 percent of the hands he's entering in position so in order to be able to play some hands out of position i was opening to 25 and when he left i kept my 25 opening right and just to recap this is not the player who's currently on the button. This is someone who is now in the main game. I was surprised. This player actually was playing shorthanded for 60 to 90 minutes. And then he got up and left for the day. Uh, he said he was playing basketball, which sounded a lot more fun than poker on a sunny summer day. <laughs> I would describe this button, who's here in this hand. I don't, it's tough to say. I don't really even like using the words professional, non-professional. I mean, that can vary from year to year, certainly. I would describe the player to my left as a tough winner. He's retired from another good profession. He probably doesn't need to do anything to make money, but he tries very hard at poker and he's a tough winner. Is he relying on poker as his income source? Probably not, but he's smart. He is very experienced. He will play in tough games, but if after 90 minutes he feels the game's too tough, he'll go do something better and come back to a different game. But he's also dedicated enough where if he's there to play poker for the day, I've seen him play for 90 minutes, think the game is too tough, and he's I played some very tough game at, games at Twin River. But if, if the game's too tough, I'll see him leave. And it, I used to think he was gone for the day, but he would come back two or three hours later and put in another six or seven hours. So he's definitely taking it very seriously. And like I said, he's a, he's a tough winner, but is he a professional player? I probably wouldn't classify him as a professional. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, I do think this category of player, while they, I think they deserve more respect than they typically get from professionals. I think the area where they are more likely to have leaks is in situations that are different than what they're accustomed to. And maybe, the, maybe he plays a lot of shorthanded poker, but I, I tend to think that people who don't have a strong theoretical understanding of the game are less likely to adjust well to situations they're not accustomed to. And so if he, he might have an excellent strategy for full ring because that's his main game and that's where he's putting in most of his volume. But if he doesn't have a framework to think about how his strategy should adjust in these other situations, 
then I think he's unlikely to have or maintain his edge in this situation. And so I think you opening the cutoff very widely against this player type uh, is wise. That's a bullseye analysis. That's exactly the analysis I did. And in fact, if the basketball player was were still in the game, I would never open 3-4 suited. Uh, just earlier, he might have been there only for one hour. I think he might have three bet me three times in that hour. I four bet him once and he went all in <laughs> and I had to fold my 9-7 suited. And this person the way you described the analysis of him, I think is accurate. And so I felt like opening three, four suited was the right thing to do with him on the button. All right. And that's also fun because now we get to discuss a hand where you have three, four suited. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I open the button calls, the passive player in the small blind calls and the passive player in the big blind calls. So four of us see a flop that has $100 in it. I have the three, four of clubs. The flop is the three of diamonds, five of clubs, 10 of spades. So about as dry of a flop as you can get three, five, 10 mm-hmm. rainbow diamond clubs, spades. The first passive player, the small blind, checks. The big blind leads out for $35. The big blind is capable of doing this with, I would say, many different hands. I feel like he probably does not have an air ball, but he could have any one of the pairs. He could even have eights or nines, maybe even sevens. He could have four six. He could have a 10. I wasn't that sure of what to make with this $35 bet into $100 on the three, five, 10. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think a lot of hands are possible here. So these spots are interesting because I think sometimes proceeding through a flat can give you more fold equity later against the weaker portions of this player's range. Like when you flat and they have a hand like seven five six five, and the board doesn't give or the turn doesn't give them additional equity, they often choose to check fold or check call one and check fold the river. And so I think if we weren't four ways, I'd often be continuing here through a flat. I think though that this should definitely be a raise. I don't know if you want to say anything about the option of flatting before I go into raising. I feel like I discussed this hand with uh, basically the only person that I discuss poker with, my friend Jared, who felt like raising was by far the better thing to do here. He also thought that the second best thing to do, given my analysis of the situation that I just described, would probably be to just fold it. I felt oh, no. like, yeah, I felt like having backdoor straights backdoor flushes and a deceptive pair made it so that folding was not the best option, but I clearly see his recommendation for raising 35 into a hundred. It's so unlikely that he has a monster. It's so likely that he has a, a feeler bet where he's going to bet to see where he is at 
so to say. I think many people who are recreational players will do that. He's trying to bet to protect whatever equity he has in the hand against my perhaps ace jack, ace king, ace queen, or complete air ball. So I feel like a raise here is the best play. Yeah, I think raising is very, very clearly the best play. I mentioned the business about flatting to to compare the situation to one where you're heads up. So let's say you open the cutoff and get called by the big blind and get led into on this board. In that event, I think that there's more of a case to flat. When you're forehanded, I think raising is essential. And here's why. Basically, you accomplish two things through a raise that aren't accomplished through a flat. And they both have to do with denying equity. And the fact that you have the hand you have demonstrates why it's even more important to deny equity now. So when you have an overpair on this board and you continue with through a flat, you give hands like five, six, five, seven, six, seven, just a ton of one pair or gut shot or pair with backdoors type hands, the ability to continue behind profitably, even if they don't feel like they necessarily have the best hand now. And so when you have ace, 10, king, 10, jacks plus, I think you have a high or you're highly incentivized to deny equity from the hands behind and also try and get value from your opponent's range while the board is less scary. When you have a hand like three, four of clubs, it's even more important because you have this sort of golden opportunity against this very sort of middling range of hands that's likely to be leading here because you can represent two, kind of two out of three portions of the board overcards to the board are going to favor your range for the most part after raising here. And so you get to barrel on a lot of those cards. And also your actual hand interacts with the bottom half of the board. So a two, two, three, four, six, seven, all those cards improve your equity. A seven can be a little bit dicey, but all these cards improve your equity. And so if you can deny the portion of your opponent's range that interact with those cards. So if you can get button to fold a hand like five, six, that improves your ability to barrel on that part of the board. And probably I would raise here and plan to barrel on, I guess anything six and lower or jack and higher, and then knuckle back on a lot of seven through 10 types of cards. But yeah, I think raising here, it's just important because that's how you're going to play your value range with two players left to act facing this bet size. And also you deny equity on the portion of the board that improves the equity of your current holdings. I think that's very well said, articulated. Unfortunately, I did not do that. I agree with your entire assessment. I felt like by just calling here that the button and small blind would only raise for value that they would fold most of their hands and that I could reassess on the turn and make a decision based on what the passive $35 better did on the turn. But I just want to reiterate that raising is clearly the better play. I can see it now and you expertly describe all the reasons why I feel like also you didn't mention the 
probably all too often mentioned, it caps my range, but it really does in this spot, because if I had any of those good holdings, I would be raising to deny equity. I'm essentially saying the most I have here is 10.8, probably, maybe 10.9. So I feel like all of the reasons that you gave make this a clear raise, and I made a mistake by just calling. Yeah, and I think, again, in like the heads-up situation, you are a little bit – you lose some of your top-end range when flatting, but it's less essential to contain that top-end range, heads-up, and it's easier to balance a range or balance a calling range in a heads-up situation. I think it's not worth the cost of allowing these players to realize their equity through a flat in a multi-way situation with those top-end hands. So, I, yeah, I think the action is – it caps you much more severely in this situation than in the heads-up equivalent. And so you, Jared, and I, I guess are all on the same page about the raise. And so I guess we'll continue playing the hand through a call and see what unfolds. So I do make the call, and the tough winner on the button also makes the call. And the small blind folds. So the three of us see the turn which is the nine of clubs. So the board at this time is the three of diamonds, five of clubs, 10 of spades, nine of clubs. I hold the three, four of clubs. There is $205 in the pot and the initial $35 better checks to me. What mm -hmm. are your thoughts? So you said that the five is the, the other club. The five is the other club, three of diamonds, five of clubs, 10 of spades, nine of clubs. I would bet here. I think it's close, but I think the passive player, they're going to have a lot of calls on this board, but I think that they're unlikely to have many check raises. One, it's just not really in the wheelhouse of a player like this to do that much check raising on this board. You know, if they were fortunate enough to have a hand like 10-9, they would, I think they'd be very likely to bet here. And so, well, I think you get called by that player a lot on this board. Uh, you're, you afford yourself the opportunity to bluff certain rivers and also build a pot for the occasions where your hand improves. I think the five being a club is significant because the player behind, I do think, should have some bluff raises here. But I think you're very likely to be ahead of those and have a fairly clear call against those hands. I think this player could have 10-9, but I think that 10-9 is that player's most likely value raise. I don't think that player is particularly likely to have a hand like 5-9 or 3-9. And so I think a lot of their raises could be club draws, although it's difficult for them to have a club draw. The reason that it's nice to have the 5 not be a club is that I think 5x of clubs is a hand that gets turned into a bluff pretty often. And that hand has us in really, really bad shape. So the fact that our opponent can't be bluff raising us with a hand like 5x of clubs makes it much easier to bet call on this street um, versus a raise from button. And so since I think we clearly have the equity to bet call versus button, and we are unlikely to get raised by the original raiser, I think that it's best just for us to seize initiative 
and often get to the river heads up against the big blind with a lot of flexibility, given we have a stronger range position. What amount would you bet into the $205 pot? I don't see any reason to bet particularly small here. I'd probably bet something like 140. I decided I, I like your reasoning and I decided to bet 120 into 205. But the person with whom I discussed this hand thought it might be better to bet smaller, say 85. Now, 120 is just under 60% of the pot, whereas 85 is just over 40%. And the reason I did not like the 85 bet suggestion was because I think that looks so weak. It's almost like the $35 lead bet from the big blind on the flop. It screams weakness. You're only betting 40%. Of the, of, the, of the pot when a drawery card that comes to make the board more wet versus two players as the pre-flop raiser, I feel like you're inviting a raise, not, as you said, from a passive player who's unlikely to check anything except for a complete monster like a set, but from the tough winner from behind. Any thoughts on betting 85 so you can more easily call a raise from the tough winner versus 120 versus your 140 suggestion? I think 120 and 140 are very similar. So I don't think you're going to have a huge change in results from either of those two sizings. I do think 85 is it's going to look weaker on this board. I think this isn't a spot where we want to look particularly merged per se. I think we have plenty of hands that are confident enough that they are the best hand. You know, Jack-10, Queen-10, King-10 are possibilities. 10-9, obviously, pocket nines, of course. We could slow play a set here. So these are possible. So I think you have enough sort of top-end range, particularly given given how the button should be somewhat capped. I mean, they could also slow play, but they should be somewhat capped, 10-9 being the likely exception. And with both you and the button understanding that the big blind is quite capped here, given how passive a player they are. And so I don't, I don't see any reason to bet a sizing that seems depolarizing so that you can, I guess, give the illusion that you're betting a weaker range of value hands. In terms of giving yourself the price to call a raise, I think that we have such good equity against the raising range anyway that I don't mind if we have to face a larger raise from the button. I just think we're ahead of that raise a lot. Fair enough, because that's what happened. (laughs) The button raised my $120 bet to a total of $325, and the button had $675 behind so again, I bet 120 into 205. The button raised to a total of 325. So it is up to me to call 205 more or raise all in, knowing he has the 325 in the pot plus another 675 behind. I don't think that folding was an option for me. 
although the person with whom I discussed the hand thought so, but I'm glad to hear that you share my opinion that just have too much going on in this hand and the buttons essentially only repping specifically 10-9 and 5-5 and that's it. And I think 5-5 might even raise a little smaller. Yeah, I think those hands are, 10-9 is very likely. Fives gets here occasionally. There's one combo of threes that sometimes plays this way, but it's not that important. I think this raise is very often 6-7. And given that you open to 25 and this player's on the button, I think 6-7 offsuit is possible. Maybe you would consider that to be unlikely. I would not. In fact, I'd also put in queen-jack and king-queen as some possibilities, but especially queen-jack. I feel like I have seen this tough winner play you know, two overs that could make a runner-runner straight draw before in a spot like this. Yeah, and I agree. I think queen-jack is very possible, especially like queen-jack suited with a backdoor. And so you, you do have some reverse implied odds here, but I actually think that it's really nice to have clubs since if this player is bluffing with a hand that isn't clubs, they're very likely to pull the trigger on a club run out. And so I think even though sometimes we get flush over flushed, we actually have good implied odds on a club. And if, if our opponent has a hand like 10-9 or a set, I think they're fairly likely to make a value bet on a club run out anyways, just since most of our range isn't clubs. You know, especially if they had a hand like 10-9 with a 10 of clubs or something. So, yeah, I, I think that you have far too much equity to fold. And we're fairly likely to get put into a tough spot on the river if it comes like a total blank. And thinking of what those blanks are, like an ace is a card I'd be very tempted to call a bet on. Trying to think what else, what are other cards where we should be love catching? A four is tricky. I don't know that you beat much when the four comes in, but I think a deuce is probably a card that you call off on. I um, thought a deuce might be a little tougher only because we didn't mention the possibility of the button having a four six. Now he only has three combinations of four six suited versus let's say sixteen combinations of queen jack that he would call on the button for twenty five dollars. He would call all queen jacks on the button. But it's possible he has a hand like four six and decided that based on my capped range, based on me not likely having a monster that maybe he would raise four six here and then bluff the river. So a two or seven might might be somewhat tough, although I agree with you that if he has 6-7, I don't know that he would turn that into a bluff. Yeah, although I think people don't give up quite enough when they hit a pair like a 6 or a 7. I think there are definitely instances where when you hit your 6 or a 7, you shouldn't give up. You, sh you, you almost never have the best hand, but this just isn't one of those situations. Yeah, and I, I agree that 4-6 is possible, but I still think a deuce is safe enough. So I think ace-deuce-3 are very clearly safe to call down. And a 4 is deceptive because I think a 4 doesn't improve your hand to beat any of your opponent's value range. 
and improves a lot of their bluffs. And so I think I might fold on a four, a five. I don't expect a five to get bet that often. So I think when your opponent bets on a five, it's a little, that's a very tough spot in my opinion. Anyway, we'll get to it when we get there and we can discuss more of it about how the specific river card interacts with your ranges. But yeah, I, I think the turn bet call is very good. I like, I like how you play the turn a lot. So I did, uh, I called it and was gifted an extremely lucky, perfect Valentine from heaven, the three of hearts. So right. for a final board of three of diamonds, five of clubs, 10 of spades, nine of clubs, and three of hearts giving me trips. Yeah. What do you do based on that? I'm tempted to lead. So, but I, I think checking is best against this player. I think this player, so against a worse player, I'm picturing this player as, I guess, like older than 50. Is that accurate? It is. Uh, I'd say he is late 50s. And incidentally, the healthiest person I've ever encountered in a poker room in 15 years. Well, I think my temptation to lead comes from that mental image. And this that's part of like just not having enough respect for this player. Against other 50-year-olds, I might be more inclined to lead here, thinking that they aren't going to bluff this card and that they might not even bet a hand like 10-9. But I think that would be a mistake. I don't see any reason to lead against this player. I think that this player has a bluffing range on the turn that could easily continue here. And I think this player is savvy enough to bet 10-9 for value. I don't know that you should be check-raising here just because it is possible for your opponent to have the best hand. We didn't really mention nines is a possibility on the flop, but I do think that's a hand that your opponent could hold. And so with your opponent's full houses, that seems like enough of a deterrent to raising. We haven't really talked about stacks, but I think you said you were 100 bigs deep, so probably yes. any check raise would be an all-in, which would prevent your opponent from calling with any of their, or rebluffing you with any of their draws. And I don't necessarily think 10-9 is likely to call. But if you, do, if you think 10-9 is likely to call, then I think there's a case for just check jamming. I'm thinking that your best play is to check all here. I feel perhaps the river and maybe preflop are the only two streets I confidently played. And I feel like 10-9 bets here all of the time. And we just mentioned so many different bluffing hands like 6-7, like possibly king-queen, certainly queen-jack. There are so many bluffs here. And if he does have a hand that he does have value, like a 10-9, that certainly is going to bet. So I see no reason to let these bluffs get away. And I feel like betting here would just get the bluffs off the hook. And there are so many of them that I think it would be a mistake to bet here. Now, on the other hand, you could say, well, sure, I, I could act like I've missed and just decided to bet the river. But I think based on the way the hand played out, it's fairly unlikely that I have a miss that I didn't raise the flop with or bet and then raise all in on the turn. It seems like I have a hand somewhat like I have. And I feel like there's no reason to 
stop the bluffs from from betting. Yeah, I agree. I think leading on this board would be a huge mistake. My temptation to lead sort of stems from a slightly different scenario where our opponent fears over pairs more and is very unlikely to bluff this river. And I think that opponents should be a little bit reluctant to bluff this river, but with the bottom of your range, like 6-4 and 6-7, I think it's worth going for it because it's possible for you to have floats that have missed that are still winning. Or not floats, but to have drawing hands like, you know, bet calling a hand like queen-jack on the turn or some sort of club draw, like an ace-queen of clubs type hand. I don't know if I would be... I don't know about the queen-jack. I haven't really thought it through, but I felt like, what if I have a hand like ace-deuce or ace-four, then if you're holding one of the 16 queen-jacks that you decided to bluff the turn with, you're going to have to go all in. And it would be very difficult for me to call with an ace-high, I believe. So I feel like queen-jack is almost in the same spot as a 4-6. I think 4-6 has the benefit of... 4-6 is the clearest bluff here, since... You get hands like Queen Jack and Six Seven to fold, and those are both possible for you. And clearly those hands can't call a bet. It's because getting those hands to fold makes your bluff successful. You don't need to get a hand like Ace High to fold. With Queen Jack, turning that into a bluff here, you really need those ace highs, which and there aren't that many. I don't think you're calling Ace four, ace deuce without clubs. And those hands might three bet shove the flop at some frequency. So I think it's difficult to get a pair to fold here. And so I would be tempted just to check back with those holdings. I, I like your analysis. I think you meant three but three bet bluff the turn. Right, right. Uh, and which I, I agree with you. Having the wheel draw, the ace high, and clubs would be and no pair, no showdown value. That would be a an ideal candidate to three bet bluff the turn. So it is unlikely that I have ace queen. So I can see a reason why four six is much better than queen jack. But I also feel like queen jack here is going to put any non paired, you know, I mean, I guess you could show down with it, but I feel like if I have a hand like ace five or some other, some other funky hand, I don't know. It's tough tough for me to consider showing down queen jack if i'm the button but based on our talk right now i see more merit to it than i do from just necessarily bluffing it off every time i think if you had a hand like ace deuce here especially you would probably find the call is my guess that being said i think this player profile while they have a lot of strengths differentiating between the merit of bluffing a hand like 4-6 and the merit of bluffing a hand like queen-jack isn't necessarily one of those strengths. And so I think if this player is going to continue bluffing with a hand like 4-6 or 6-7, they are fairly likely to continue bluffing with a hand like queen-jack, king-jack, or whatever they may have. And so I think the EV of checking your 3-4 is very high. And to me, the bigger question is whether you go for the value raise or not. Um, and I, I actually think there is a case to shuffle value, but I think it's, all, it's going to depend on 
Uh, I kind of think you'll, you'll probably end up just shoving, and that's probably best. Uh, let's see. I didn't record what was in the pot, but just on the turn, we put in 650, plus there was 205. So there's 855 in the pot. He, oh, The button only had 675 behind, so an all-in would be a reasonable amount, and that's what he did. He bet all-in 675 into the pot of 855, and so it was an easy call, obviously, and he simply said, I missed. You're good. As we expected. River play, pretty clear here. Um, but I think it is worth exploring what you're doing with other parts of your range. Part of why leading a hand like 3-4 here can be tempting is because it, it can also be tempting to lead misdraws some frequency. Like you have enough bluff catchers here with your 10x that I think often... I, I actually normally don't bluff this run out unless maybe I had a hand like exactly 6-4. I just think it's really tough to get folds from any bluff catchers. And I think people are more likely to fold a hand like 6-7 or queen-jack facing the turn raise than queen-10 or jack-10. And you know, those hands didn't call the turn to fold this run out. I would tend to be pretty value value heavy with a river bet. And so I think there's a more of a case to just realizing that when it's a value versus value, nothing goes differently here. And it's better for your overall strategy to lead your value since it affords you the opportunity to lead bluffs more credibly. But I just don't think that's a consideration that's worthwhile for this hand. And I think against this opponent who will have a bluffing frequency... Almost, I almost think that this player is likely to be at a level where they're good enough to have bluffs and they don't realize necessarily like what runouts are, you know, where are the exploits in the bluffing side of the green tree. I think a lot of players who begin to bluff tend to follow through too often and don't realize where they are likely to get called way too much. Against an elite opponent, you're going to get called at an, the appropriate frequency. And so you should always have bluffs. But in this exact situation, I think just not having bluffs other than the stone bottom of your range is probably the best. I think for sure I would be giving up with a hand like Queen Jack here. I think that makes sense. And I would also for sure be calling with an ace high in your situation. Although it's a little hard to have ace, ace high. But I, I think you could definitely have a hand like ace-king, ace-queen, ace-jack of clubs. Yes, I agree with that. I think those are the most likely ace-high hands. And those are functioning... Those are really similar to your 3-4 of clubs in the sense that I felt like you often had the best hand with a pair of threes on the turn. I think that would... I mean, that's clearly the case when you have ace-x of clubs. The one category of hands that you now lose to being three extra clubs. You have good implied odds against those hands anyway. So I think you often get here with that set of hands. And I think that those hands are also fairly trivial calls because, you know, we've identified that this opponent is going to be continuing their bluffs probably more than optimal. I think you're right. I think you're right about, I hadn't thought about it in as much depth as 
we have just in this conversation. But I think you're right that many people who are tough players feel like once they begin a bluff in a situation like the one we just described, uh, and maybe me included, are, are not putting enough deep thinking or the extra little mile in that deep thought to determine what boards help them and hurt them as far as river bluffing success. This is something that I've had to learn because I play a lot of hands. I'm often the aggressor and I have a very high bluffing frequency on the flop and often the turn. And so one of the things you learn if that's sort of your style of play is what are sort of the hopeless river situations where you just never get any folds. And if you're someone who is a more casual bluffer, or uh, that's the wrong term. If you're someone who isn't bluffing at a really high frequency and you turning, deciding to bluff with a hand is slightly more novel, I think you're less likely to shut down or know that it's important to shut down on this kind of run out where range narrowing is unlikely to occur. You know, if any scare card comes in on the river, then I think you have a case against most of the field to fire the third barrel with most of your range. Because we, we even established this with your thinking a little bit, where the deuce scared you. And I think you're wise to, to realize that when the deuce comes in, sometimes you don't have the best hand. That being said, there is a contingent of opponents where, you know, as long as some draw comes in, they feel pretty comfortable releasing their worst bluff catchers. Where, and that affords you the opportunity to be bluff heavy on the river. Uh, and when you can profitably be bluff heavy on the river, that's a very powerful situation. It is. And I do want to say that I'm not saying I would have folded necessarily with a deuce, but it may have scared me more then than after I went through the hand. Because while I believe, as I said, he has really. 16 combinations of queen jack and 16 combinations of king queen and an eight or a king would have been something that i really would have had to be concerned about i feel like the deuce is still only three combinations of four six because i don't think he's playing those offsuits so you know it, it would be scary but if i if i've made it this far in the hand i'm going to call whereas i feel like an eight is going to be far scarier and a king is going to be far scarier. I don't know what I would do. I hadn't thought it through with the eight or a king, but those would be some of the most scary cards. Whereas the deuce, even though it does complete the draw and I wouldn't like it, I would probably think it through and call because essentially he has to have specifically four, six suited. Yeah. I think the eight is your clearest fold. You beat almost nothing at that point. Yeah, I wasn't insinuating that you would fold on a deuce. I, I'm pretty confident you find the call there. But you're also, you know, a professional and you understand the game. I think the fact, the point I was making is that the fact that you, someone who, you know, fits those descriptions, felt a twinge of uncertainty, even on a card as innocuous as a deuce, because it completes some of the draws, shows that when an even scarier card like a club or an eight or a king or even potentially a queen or a seven comes in. You have a lot of power as the person with initiative 
I think you're right about that. And I didn't think about that element of the hand, but I learned a lot from this conversation. And even now, just reviewing with you, the what's the best decision tree cards? And clearly, if I'm on the other end of this, a card like an eight, a king, possibly a queen, are great bluffing cards for me if they don't complete my hand. And a card like a, a deuce, a three, a five, obviously a ten, are ones that are clearly should be shut down unless you have the specific four, six, hopeless, no shot to be a winner hand as your bluff. Yeah, and eight is almost so good for you that I would be tempted not to shove, although I probably still would. But yeah, an eight, like if the eight comes in, I, I don't think you can shove ten nine for value. I think that'd be a big mistake. I think that you're right. I think the eight might be the sole card that I would not, if I were in the button spot, I feel like the 10, nine, the eight is such is, is perhaps the scariest card in the deck. Now that being said, if, if you have a hand like ace, deuce of clubs, ace, four of clubs, and the river is an ace, I think you can shove for value on the river as the art from the buttons spot. I think that you're right about that. It's unlikely that I have ace with a pair on the board, but I may very well be calling down with an ace high, as you said, ace king of clubs, ace queen of clubs, ace jack of clubs that I got to the turn with. Right, but when we have ace deuce of clubs as the button, that eliminates those sorts of hands. And so I think it's just worth going for it affords us the opportunity to bluff a little bit more. Not that I would necessarily take that opportunity, but I think we just get called by a 10 so often that it's worth going for the max with an ace there. I agree, especially if you, as you said, if you have an, an ace X of clubs, then that means that the person can't be calling you down with the hand that he reached the turn with. That's an ace high. Yeah, unless... I. <laughs> I could see myself showing up there with hands like ace-king, ace-queen of, you know, another backdoor. Basically planning to double barrel against... I could see myself having like ace-king of hearts. Betting the turn, setting up a double barrel against the big blind. Getting raised. Feeling like I probably have the best hand. And then calling... That's a situation I've found myself in a lot where I'm bluffing one player and then get raised by another player and now feel like I actually have the best hand. But I don't think many players take those sorts of lines. So I don't think you're in danger of valuing yourself with ace-deuce in that spot. I could not be a professional player if my opponents were as good as you. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I just can't At help least myself. No You'll have to come over to stud, PLO, or mixed games. Stud is unlikely anytime soon. I think the I'm fascinated by the big bet rotation. I could see myself if I have some tournament success and a larger bankroll, investigating those games. You know, being in the series, playing a little bit in the Bellagio and seeing some of the lineups playing like 2550 big bet rotation it definitely seems like a goal worth aiming for and 
I think people have been saying that mixed games are coming for a while. And I think in some, some ways they're right. But we've developed such like a big bet generation of players that I think that the big bet mixed games are almost as likely, if not more likely, to proliferate. We'll see. But those those games are really fun. I've been playing some of them with friends, like especially Dramaha, which I think is a extremely fun and interesting game. It is. I love it. Um, I've never played it with Big Bet, but uh, I've played it at the limit, and I find Dramaha and Archie to be two of the more fun games I've played in the last six months. Yeah, I've read the rules to Archie, but I haven't played it. But yeah, th- those games are fun. I So on off nights during the World Series, I was in a house with some other very good poker players. And, you know, if we decided to play at night, we generally didn't want to play No Limit because we were playing No Limit all the time. Um, and so we were playing games such as Dramaha and variants of Dramaha that we created for our own entertainment. And I made a lot of money this summer at my house. <laughs> <laughs> and had a lot of fun. Yeah, and had I a bet. lot of fun. When you're playing with friends, I find losing isn't very fun. Losing isn't very fun for me at any time. Yeah, but it, I agree. Unless it's playing a brand new game for the first time, then I would say my expectation is not to win. And as long as the stakes are comfortable, the learning fact can make it fun. But losing in general, no fun. Yeah, I agree with that. When you throw in the sort of hyper-competition between friends then it gets a little bit dicey. I don't feel that competitive against the players I am playing against in a casino setting. It's just sort of the nature of the transaction. And I don't like putting it that way, but for our audience, I'll put it that way. The sort of nature of the transaction, it it doesn't feel very competitive to me. It's more I'm providing action and collecting a fee. And when you're playing against friends, I think it, it becomes a much more competitive situation. I can understand that. Sure. My demeanor is much more like that of you know, playing a game of basketball and playing poker with friends than playing poker in the casino. I would say as the stakes get higher and the competition becomes tougher, it more resembles the ultra-competitiveness because you're playing against other very good and very tough players. Sure, you also are providing entertainment, but I feel like, for me, once the stakes are at 150, 300, there are many tough competitors, and the numbers that you're winning or losing are so big that people really feel it. So I would feel that losing there is extremely stressful to me. Um, whereas, let's say, if I were playing 2 5 with friends, I wouldn't feel the competition that much. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't get to play high stakes quite as often as you. I'm a, I call myself a low volume professional since I do things other than play poker. And so I don't, especially when I'm in New York, which is my home base and where I'm most engaged with the other aspects of my life. I'm not playing poker more than three times a week for the most part. Generally I'm putting in, I put in about half my volume across the two and a half months or so of the year where I'm traveling for poker. And so as a low volume professional, my bankroll hasn't <laughs> swelled to the point where I'm putting in so much volume uh, at 510 and higher. Although I'm putting in 
Enough, especially when I'm traveling. But yeah, I'm so often playing 2-5 or 5-5 that I'm not confronted by the best of the best and haven't developed that competitive edge or haven't redeveloped that competitive edge. I felt it more at an earlier stage. But that's interesting that it correlates with the amount of money on the table. And that, that makes sense to me. I would say if you're want to discuss a hand in the future, Jackson, I'd be happy to come on again. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm, I'm honored that you had me on your excellent podcast. No honor necessary. We're very, very, we, I, I'm very, very happy to have you. And I'm sure I'll have, have you again without the convenience of doing something last minute with Zach, which is sort of dominated our content for the last two years. I have to be more proactive about getting guests. And that means that we'll have our best guests on at a higher frequency, and you will be among those if you're willing. And so, again, I thank you for your time, and I enjoyed discussing this hand and other things, and forward to our conversation continuing in the future. That sounds great. Take care, Jackson. You too.